Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision, and kicking off our new season, Fintech Fuse. This is Theo, your host for this episode, along with my brilliant co-host Bart McLean. Now, today we are super delighted to welcome Caitlin Long to join us on the show. Caitlin is a two-decade Wall Street veteran, founder and CEO of digital asset-focused Custodial Bank, and somebody that absolutely needs no introduction. Massive congrats, Caitlin, on being named American Banker Innovator of the Year, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Theo and Barb. It's my honor to be here. Thank you. And also, let's not forget, congrats on Custodian Bank going live. I I, uh, <laughs> yes. I could feel the sigh of relief uh, from a lot of people <laughs> at long last. Good God. Um, American Banker Penny described you as the torch bearer for the federal regulation of digital assets. Um, and flashback to when you first started focusing on digital assets to where you are right now. Kaylin, I, I really want to kick off and ask you, is this how or what you expected the journey to be? Oh, boy, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> I thought it was going to be a lot smoother. And I thought that regulators would welcome the folks from the digital asset industry who know how to separate the wheat from the chaff and want to work with them and be at the table with them. And in fact, we found it was the polar opposite. So it certainly has has taken longer to get to get a bank established. It, uh, it, it really, it's amazing. Banking is the most regulated industry. And it's funny, when I saw recently that the banking agencies came out with the new regulations to push down higher capital requirements to mid-sized banks, uh, it's 1,098 pages. And I thought, <laughs> okay, there are so many gotchas in that 1,098 pages, right? Um, it, and and uh, it just goes to show you how regulated it is. And it's, and it's definitely harder and takes longer to get a bank. Uh, this is why a lot of people will just buy uh, regular, you know, standalone banks. But the Fed take a pretty, pretty severe, rightly so, action against the acquisition. A charter strip is what they, <laughs> what they call them. These charter acquisitions, where someone comes in, buys a teeny tiny bank, doesn't tell the regulators what their real intention is, and uh, and completely changes the business model. It's definitely, the, the the fact that the federal bank regulators have been allowing that. And, and, and creating that advantage for incumbents over startups is a, definitely a problem. So I was glad to see a big, um, heavy crackdown against that acquisition by an FTX affiliate applied to the Fed for the change in control under the Fed's controls and did not and somehow still got through. So this is maybe um, a presumed lead into the next question. I don't know, but um, I did want to talk a little bit about and hear from you on what concerns you most about the financial services industry, but also on the flip side, what inspires you most? Wow. Well, I've I've watched it. I came in part time in in ninety three and then full time in ninety four, and just watched it thrive for people who weren't in the proverbial old boys club. 
Um, and, and in the early years where I was one of the only women around, um, I was grateful to the few who had already broken through, who did mentor and help break through uh, and, and try to help solve the problem of why there is so much voluntary attrition from the financial industry of especially women. I watched a lot of the people I started in my, in my um, training class leave after three, four years. And uh, there weren't very many of us who stayed and I'm glad I did. Um, So that's certainly inspiring. It's, it's interesting because we haven't completely solved the problem. um, And there are some fundamental reasons for it, but there are also some systemic reasons for it. Uh, I, somebody, 4,236 banks in the United States, only 13 are women owned. It's a really small number and it's even smaller for other minority groups. And that's a problem. And so of what has happened is have been, but not gains at the top and where, um, where there's, there's certainly needs to be better opportunity. Now there's, there of course a debate over whether it's systemic. I certainly have experienced some things I have about um, here, um, but, but it is, it is interesting for all the lip service and all of the of the advances. It hasn't yet, and especially in the ownership of financial institutions in the United States. Um, one other point to uh, to to answer your question about what I'm concerned about: there's so many distortions in the financial se- system. We don't have free markets, and the most important price that is the traffic signal for entrepreneurs investing capital across different industries and across different term structures, different time. So short term, some investments are, won't pay off for, you know, 30 years or 50 years if you're building a nuclear power plant. What is the, the, the traffic signal that gives investors the, 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 the right signal to allocate capital to a long project versus a short term project from industry to a next its interest rates? And that is the, the price that should be and yet it's the most manipulated. And uh, I just was reading some research this morning, a very interesting new paper just came out about the moneyness of risk assets and how some risk assets have a a monetary premium because they can be converted into central bank reserves. This isn't just in the US, it's the way it works globally. Um, And we've been watching that, uh, the the so-called moneyness of risk assets. We saw that in the 2008 financial crisis in a big way, where mortgage-backed securities essentially were treated as though they were U.S. treasuries. And of course, the world learned the hard way that they're not. It's blew out, right? Um, And the financial crisis occurred. So um, I think we've got a, a lot of distortions, and I fear the impact of the distorted of capital that uh, because we've had we've had traffic signals flashing red, yellow, and green all directions at the same time, and it's causing a lot of confusion. I'm wondering if you know your individual background gives you a bit of an edge in understanding all of that. Um, you know. Long career, as you say, um, having observed this and been a part of it for quite some time. Uh, And I'm wondering if, you know, do you think your background in a field outside of financial services, specifically in the field of law, you know, a place that you've gone and sought education has benefited you versus other founders of fintechs who don't have that education and experience? 
And maybe just asking it more generally, where do you see those kind of benefits in your teams of their diverse experience? Oh, it's so interesting. It's a great question uh, because I would focus on the things that I wish I had more skills on um, as a startup founder, which is the technology side. I, I understand technology at a high level, but I'm not doing code review. Nobody's ever used a line of code. That's something I wish. And as, as a or younger generations, I would, would advise, make sure you know at a deeper level than somebody in their mid-50s like I am, uh, how, to, how to write code, uh, because everything's becoming software. It's the, it's the old um, Mark software is eating the world. He's right. And everything is becoming software. And even lawyers, for example, um, are, are using software in a way that, uh, you know, lawyers of my and older have not. To your, to your question, yes, it has helped a lot that I had a legal background. I never actually practiced law, but uh, in terms of, of what I've, most of what I've did in my career, it's, it's structuring actions within different regulatory regimes, which requires, or which certainly does, it doesn't require, but because it's not rocket science, but it certainly helps a lot to have a legal background. For example, the last thing I did at Morgan Stanley was to meld together the uh, two different regulatory regimes covering what was economically exactly the same thing. Annuities or pensions, pension payouts are paid out for as long and whether it's coming from your defined benefit pension plan or whether you buy an annuity from an insurance it's really functionally the same thing, but they're very different the regulations. And what I was able to do was figure out that we're sitting on corporate balance sheets. There was a this extra extra cost and uh, and 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 effectively extra capital requirement. It was causing greater cost of capital for the corporate pension plan sponsors, especially in the interest rate environment. And it would have been cheaper for those obligations to go to the insurance industry. And, you know, for a company like General Motors that had just come out of bankruptcy, we're talking you know, 10 year, more than 10 years ago, but, um, but the pension, of course, had to worry, was General Motors actually going to pay their pension? And one of the great things about opening up that market, I figured out how to meld those two, those two regulatory regimes in a way that was win-win-win. It was win for the corporates, win for the insurance companies, and win for the pensioners. And I, one of the things that, that again, in, in, in my career, I'm most grateful for was reading an ARP article about our first pension transaction from a GM pensioner who was so happy that he was getting a prudential annuity because he didn't have to worry about what was going to go bankrupt again. And, um, you know, those kinds, that's, that's the kind of thing that you work for in your career. You remember those things because you know you did good while doing well in a profession. Kaylin, you couldn't see my face, but I was chuckling because um, that was actually how I ventured from IT and telco into fintech was from ARP. Uh -huh. I spent a few years in there looking at innovation for older yeah. adults. Yeah, it's um, it's fascinating when you talk about retirement annuity and and all of that. I feel like there's so much that technology can help us do and plan better, yes. especially since you know life is so complex and stressful. But 
Yes. Right. And 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 I feel like you know there there's a lot of opportunity that we can do from an innovation perspective. Um, yet we're not doing it. it. It almost feels like we're happy just status quo. Oops. Well, you know, if you run out of money in I, your last twenty years, oh well. <laughs> well, and and that's what's so interesting is if you think about core pension fund. Um, by definition, because the insurance world and annuities is sort of the flip side of life insurance, um, it's of large numbers. And so when you have these small groups it, it, that are very disparate, they don't get the benefit of the law of large numbers, but because of the way ERISA works, they couldn't, their levity risk uh, across the uh, large numbers, whereas, of course, that's exactly what for example, does. So, um, so again, it was a win-win for everybody. It, it just economically was weighing these companies down. And, um, but, but, but to your, to your earlier question was the legal one that helped me understand. I think a lot of folks eyes glaze over when they start reading, you know, the code of federal regulations and it's only the legal nerds who are used to doing that. And uh, somebody and has to read that thousand page document, right? <laughs> Well, that, yeah, that, that, again, like coming back to the bank regulations, 1,098 pages, somebody wrote it, and a lot of people are going to have to read it, implement it, and then the better or for worse, it gives them a lot more power because they have all these gotchas that they can just use with. The interesting questions that we should be asking ourselves is, does it really take that level of regulation in order to create a solvent bank? I would posit no. They're 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 very focused on regulating things that don't get at what really matters, which is is the institution solvent, and they give them their money back. Those are the kinds of things. If we step back and say, boy, we've gone way over the cliff here, um, and 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 you know created um, way too we we've, we're regulating the wrong things and and doing it in a way that gives the regulators the powers to abuse. Um, and one of the interesting aspects of that, we've seen this brouhaha that, uh, that, that, that exploded in the UK over banks closing bank accounts because they don't agree with politics. I know in the fintech world, this is a huge issue because there's been a move by the federal bank regulators against bank as a service. So what's it, what's so about what we're doing at Custodia, I know we have other other banks, chartered banks that are uninsured, um, because Wyoming copied the the laws of um, Maine, Connecticut, and Vermont. Nebraska copied those laws, and now Idaho has joined the fray. So this is such an eclectic group of states, right? It's you know three blue states, three red states, you know three in the in, in the heartland, three in the northeast. It's such an interesting mix, but but um, but this is a really interesting thing for fintechs to keep an eye on because you now have states saying, all right, the federal bank regulators won't either provide FDIC insurance, our fintech payment companies that want to become banks. Or the Fed won't let them in as as a Fed member bank, okay? And multiple of us have tried both of those paths, including Custodia, and neither path was available. But yet we're still operating, and and so the, um, and if you look at the law, the law says that the Federal Reserve shall provide services to all eligible depository institutions, and so now you've got depository institutions chartered in these states that are not getting the same access. Federal Reserve master accounts, as Congress very clearly requires them to provide, requires the Fed to provide. Here's the punchline for fintech. 
every fintech, every paid fintech is watching this because in the event that there are now three lawsuits over the statute that the Federal Reserve is a, is a defendant in. And uh, in the event that lawsuits break through, Congress really did mean all financial institutions that are eligible must be served by the Fed. Um, then pathway for fintechs is going to be to go get an bank charter and get a FedMaster account that way. So it's so interesting that there's a crackdown on bank as a service right now. Um, and it is a debanking wave, right? There certainly is a lecture being placed on the on the tech forward banks who are serving fintechs. And um, and yet the fintechs may be able to control their own destiny if the if if one or more of these lawsuits break through. I think this goes back to Barb's original point. With your background in law and regulations and and years of experience in Wall Street, you're able to bring all of these together in ways. And and Caitlin, this is what is so amazing about you. I've been following you for a while and the way you explain things. I can actually understand it and I don't have a background in law and I appreciate that. So, um, and, and for sure, we're all watching with great interest in what's going to happen. The one thing that baffled me a little bit, looking at outside the U.S., right, on how different regulators are proceeding um, versus w- where we are right now, it almost feels like sometimes we want to dig our head in the sand and say, no, 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 we, if we just, you know, say, keep saying no, it, it's going to go away. But it's not going away. It is. Right. Saying. Yeah. <laughs> and, and as you said, right, you know, technology is going to keep moving and we'll need to keep mm-hmm. innovating. Regardless of yeah. what we think. So looking at how things are in the rest of the world, I'm trying to end this in a little bit more hopeful way. Um, yeah. Gives you hope. Yeah, but crystal ball. <laughs> well, one of the things I love about Bitcoin I, I've, since 2012, and I've always said the price is global money. And for the first time, we actually have a truly global monetary asset. It's small. It's in the top 20 in terms of currency size, but it doesn't, it isn't required to settle on the SWIFT network, right? So network, and you cannot segregate the token of Bitcoin from the payment system of Bitcoin. It's all the same thing. And so Bitcoin can't settle on SWIFT um, and, and fiat currencies can't So how do you think about harnessing the technology that enables you to settle global movement of money in the Spanets with legal final settlement? How do you harness that Um, and and do where the the ecosystem doesn't hurt traditional banks? Banks don't hurt the coin ecosystem. And unfortunately, the way the regulators in the U.S. have handled it, they've both hurt each other. And that's sad because to your point, this is global and thinks about it. Well, it does matter to Americans who are being left behind, but it doesn't matter to the other power centers of, in particular, Switzerland's the power center in in Europe, um, Dubai's the power center in the Middle East, and Hong Kong and Singapore are are the power centers in Asia. Hong Kong is coming roaring back. China banned this 
and now has brought it back. It's almost as though because they see the U.S. trying to crack down on it, that they're swinging so hard the other way and, and actually leaning on the banks in Hong Kong crypto companies. It's, uh, you know, and the funny thing is um, there's a there's a, a protocol Tether, which has guided itself to uh, in staying entirely off U.S. dollars and um, they're getting all their U.S. dollar services from non-U.S. banks, as far as I can tell. But it, it's one of the greatest kept secrets in crypto. Where is Tether Bank? Because they don't bank very secret. I've never been able to figure it out. But they are able to settle. And they're getting those U.S. dollars from somewhere. And my guess is that, my educated guess, is that they're getting the dollars from offshore banks. So the Fed and traditional banking regulators in the U.S. have no control over this. And they're just sitting there watching it. And unfortunately, uh, there was just a story on Bloomberg. The downside of some is that it is being used in human trafficking and some just horrific, um, horrific things. And that's that's why um, I was so grateful to Penny at American Bank for calling out somebody who's actually trying to, to regulate it system to harness the benefits of this technology as opposed to just having the, this is where the criminal element and the money laundering element is is thriving. Um, on, it, it, what what is sad about it is I, I think the U.S. has had its head in the sand. I know they've had its head their head in the sand in Washington D.C. Um, and uh, it is to your point. It, it, I think they actually by firing the bazooka at the industry beginning in January of this year that they would kill it, and they certainly um, helped bankrupt more entities who were corrupted, and I applaud that. I think good riddance, a lot of the and, and scam leverage business models in crypto, or what they failed to do was kill it entirely because it's not killable, to your point. As a result, um, now here it is, it's roaring back, and uh, the Fed just last week announced a novel activity supervision program. So after uh, Door shut with no light, no crack left in the door open at all with Custodia's denial back in, in January, seven month and activity supervision program. And I see them for acknowledging they need help too. Uh, and they said they would be going to the tech industry and to academics and to banking and fintech companies for help on this. They need it. I'm glad that they realized that. What does that mean? Um, to, to your point, let's end on a positive note. I think that, that um, markets are winning, and uh, the uh, it, it's almost like the, it, with the tech, right? We went from the old copper wire networks, which were obsolete in the span of a few years when broadband came along and voice over internet protocol. It was it was the combination of those two things obsoleted all the copper wire telephone networks, and. So what did it mean? It meant that people didn't need to have a phone company in order to make a phone call. And you know how to use the command line interface. You can make a phone call over the internet. But most of us don't do that, even if we have the skills. Why? Because it's so much more convenient to have a cell phone contract with a cell phone carrier. Why? Because they make the user interface super simple and they handle security. Okay, so what's the lesson from that? When technology was overwhelming the telecom industry, they pivoted. They were going to be obsoleted, and they knew they needed to to adopt this new technology. And I do believe the banks are going to 
And that by doing that, they create an incentive for the, the dark market, all the illicit, illicit activities to, to, to stay in the shadows and the, the lit markets to be lost technology come out of the shadows they have an incentive to work with regulated companies and uh, you know because of the way the internet works you will never shut down all all crimes committed people can use tor and um and can go around internet service providers that will always be the case for anything internet native including bitcoin but the way to harness the power of the technology and control a lot of the crime is to bring it into the regulatory perimeter. And that's exactly what we've been trying to do. And I am optimistic that we're going to get there. Um, Custodia survived the, uh, the bazooka shot at us. And, uh, and, and uh, we're coming roaring back right into a likely bull market for Bitcoin with the halving that occurs in, in April 2024. Um, this will be the fourth halving in the Bitcoin network's history. I won't even explain what a halving is. It's just a fundamental change in the Bitcoin network that historically has ushered in a bull market. Um, and I just put out a tweet for from Pantera uh, that did some very, they've always done great research. They've been around since the early days. Uh, and they 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 made a price prediction uh, for $130,000 Bitcoin at the end of the next bull market. Um, and if Pat Prologue, I think they're going to be proven directionally right. My mouth just dropped. Um, okay, that is that is an amazing positive note. What's next for Custodia? Going live well, we in all are- the states. <laughs> Yeah, we've got to get live in all the states. That's going to take us some time. Um, if Had we been made a Fed member bank, it would have been easier, but it is what it is. So, of course, we've pivoted and we're getting all the licenses in the states. We're live in 25 states a day. We're adding more. Uh, and then um, uh, we will also, product basis, we're getting our Bitcoin custody live. We're ready to go. We're just waiting for approval. And because we're a bank, um, there are a lot of regulations with, and uh, we had to under a pre-launch exam and we're waiting for the results of that so stay tuned uh we we will be bringing bank level security policy procedures compliance and risk management to that doesn't exist in the market today and we can't wait to introduce it right ahead of this bitcoin bull market next year this is awesome i love it well thank you so much for spending time with us today caitlin i can't wait to hear more good news coming out from you hopefully you know it will be soon sooner rather than later and uh, <laughs> and for the rest of our listeners thank you so much for joining barb and i for another episode of one vision fintech fuse we will talk to you all next week <laughs>